ear class at this time. If you're not aware, we have a kids class every Sunday that meets in the room at the back of this larger room. And there's also a fully staffed nursery uh, that meets every Sunday in the room off the corner over here. And uh, parents, if you'd like to make use of that, you're more than welcome to drop your kids off there. Well, I'd like to invite you to join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Really, this whole chapter is devoted to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future uh, that awaits us. And so it's a joy to open up to this text uh, yet again here this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 will be in verses 29 to 34 uh, this morning. Uh, Where I grew up, there were a lot of corn and uh, bean fields. And if you, I don't know if you've ever walked through a cornfield before, you probably haven't. It's a bit of a unique adventure. Uh, but if you walk into a cornfield and the corn's above your head, it's actually, uh, it can be a bit difficult uh, to get through because you can't see anything. Uh, and the, typically the rows are pretty close together. And you need some point of reference that's taller than the corn, uh, perhaps a water tower or uh, an extremely tra- tall tree or something like that. You need something like that if you want to walk from one side of a cornfield to another to help you just keep moving in the right direction and come out on the other side. It would be similar to uh, going on a huge trek or a hike through relatively uncharted territory uh, with only a map in your hand or a compass. Those points of reference will keep you from getting lost along the way. They're going to keep you on track. You need those reference points. And along your earthly journey, there is a reference point like that, uh, which is of utmost importance to keep you moving in the right direction as a Christian. And I'd ask you, do you know what it is? What I mean, I guess there are probably multiple reference points for us, but but what would it be? What what would it be that we need to keep our eyes on if we're going to keep moving in the right direction as God's people? Well, it's our future resurrection and the realities that go with the end. And if you lose sight of those things, it's like losing your compass on your earthly journey through life. And as far as that reference point goes, some would even question the bodily resurrection of the believer and and question these realities altogether. And some of the Corinthians were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead for the believer. But the Bible says that there is, and as we've seen, uh, Christ's resurrection from the grave bodily actually demands our own resurrection one day bodily. The previous paragraph that we looked at a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15 told us what the end will be like. And uh, we just got this awesome picture of what Christ will do. And we noted two things in particular that Christ will do. Uh, We we read and studied last time how he's going to vanquish all of his foes. And he's going to put all of his enemies once and for all under his feet, including death. And after he's done that, the second thing Christ will do is hand over the kingdom to God the Father, that God the Father may be all in all. Christ's vanquishing of death will involve raising believers bodily from their graves to life eternal. And it will also involve raising unbelievers from their graves and casting them into what's called the lake of fire for their eternal destruction. And at that point, the Bible tells us, the book of Revelation tells us, death will be no more. There will be no more death. And God the Father will be all in all. That is what the future holds. What you believe about the future will impact how you live today. 
Uh, We sometimes say that belief impacts behavior. Well, belief about the future affects behavior in the present. Your belief about the future, if you believe the, the realities that I just shared with you, then your belief about the future will serve as a reference point that charts the course of your daily life. And we're going to see that together here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. I'd ask you to follow along as I read this paragraph. Paul continues, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, or the idea is I swear, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This morning, as we look at this paragraph, I just like to make three observations. First, those who believe in a future resurrection take spiritual actions on behalf of others in an attempt to secure their future. Those who believe in a future resurrection take spiritual actions on behalf of other people in an attempt to secure the the, the future of those other people. Look back at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Uh, This verse explains that there were people uh, who the Corinthians knew, and perhaps it was even some of the Corinthians involved here, but there were people who, because of their belief in a future resurrection, were taking spiritual action. Namely, they were being baptized on behalf of others. Who? The dead. Why? In an attempt to secure the future of their dead loved ones, friends, and relatives. There are over three dozen interpretations on what being baptized on behalf of the dead refers to. And to be honest, I'm not sure which of those is right. There's not a great deal of consensus. Uh, I'm not even sure it it matters all that much to our understanding of this text because uh, God just hasn't given us the details. Paul doesn't tell us who's doing this, uh, nor does he affirm in any way the practice, this superstitious custom. He simply mentions it uh, to make his argument, to state his case. If there's no future resurrection, then why on earth are people doing things and taking actions like this for other people? Personally, I tend to think that Paul is probably referring to a pagan practice uh, practiced by unbelievers. Although, as I said, perhaps some of the Corinthians were involved in this and engaged in it. But either way, I think that the Bible is clear. There's no need for this practice, and it would have absolutely no effect. It's interesting. The Mormons have a practice of baptizing for the dead. And here are a few excerpts from the Washington Post on that practice. Mormons believe that vicarious baptisms, uh, vicarious means uh, like substitutionary or in the place of. Mormons believe that vicarious baptisms give the deceased 
who exist in the afterlife as conscious spirits, a final chance to join the Mormon fold and thus gain access to the celestial kingdom. One scholar said Mormons are encouraged to baptize at least four generations of forebears to seal the family together in the afterlife. So the LDS Church has built the world's most extensive genealogical library in Salt Lake City with over 700 employees and more than 2 billion names. I just want to ask you a question. I mean, you, you have Mormons and they're baptizing on the behalf of the dead for the future that comes. Does a Mormon's belief about the future have a greater impact on what he does than your belief about the future has on what you do? He believes in a future. He believes in a a celestial kingdom. And he wants other people to, to experience that in its fullness. He believes in a future, so he takes spiritual actions on behalf of others in an attempt to secure their future. And his faith is built on something entirely faulty. It's built on a faulty foundation, but yours isn't. No, our, our faith is built on Jesus Christ and the gospel. And what was, uh, as verses 3 and 4 talk about, uh, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Our faith is built on that. Do you believe in a future? And does that cause you to engage in spiritual activities in an attempt to secure the eternal future of other people? Paul is saying, if there is no future, if there is no resurrection of the dead, why do people take actions like this, even ones that are ill-founded? The reality is, if you do believe in a future, you will take actions. What you believe about the future will impact how you live today. And if you are convinced of a future resurrection, you will take spiritual actions on behalf of others in an attempt to secure their future. And unlike people who their faith is not built on Scripture and the gospel, as we would ask, well, what action should I take? We can open up God's word and think of many actions that we could and should take. For example, if I know that the people around me and my coworkers and family members and, and, and my community await a future that is either going to be glorious or terrible, then surely that would lead me to pray for those people that they would come to a saving knowledge of God, that God would save them. But hopefully that would, that would lead me to more than just praying for other people. Hopefully that would lead me to, into engaging with them conversationally and relationally, not going, oh, those people, those, those are a bunch of unclean people who are on their way to God's judgment and wrath and look at their awful, horrible life. Mm, can't hang out with them. No. I mean, if, if we believe in a future, it's going to drive us towards other people and go, how can, how can we talk with them and relate with them and get to know them and, and, and have relationships with them so that ultimately we can share the good news of the gospel and the bright future that awaits those who know him. And as we've said uh, here before, uh, just some simple realities that we can do is we can meet people and we can just seek to love them and tell them about Jesus and care. And that's really where Paul goes next. And so we want to make a second observation. 
those who believe in a future resurrection live radically on mission. Paul says, listen guys, <laughs> if there's no resurrection, why do I put my own life in danger every day for the advance of the gospel? Those who believe in a future resurrection live radically on mission. How so? Well, big picture, we might say that they don't really live for today. I mean, we could look at Scripture and we could look at a book like Ecclesiastes and encouraging us to, to enjoy this life, and that's certainly true. And yet for God's people, while we do that, we also look forward to the future, and we live for that day. Verses 30 to 32 give us an example of what this looks like in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you believe in a future resurrection, if you believe that the end is coming uh, like the previous paragraph describes, then you will live with that future day in view today. That day will determine what you do today. You will live for tomorrow. And what does that look like? What does it look like for uh, God's people? What does it look like for Beaumont Baptist Church to live for a future day and to live for tomorrow? Well, it means that you will make sacrifices for the advance of the gospel. And, and you will do things that perhaps from an outsider's perspective and viewpoint would be absurd. That's what Paul's saying. The way that I live my life and the, the, the things that I do and the sacrifices that I make, it's absolutely crazy and ridiculous if there is no resurrection. In verses 30 to 32, Paul says things like this. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 30. Verse 31, he says, I die every day. And what he means there is every day, my life is literally in mortal danger. Verse 32, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And his point is that he was in mortal danger time and time again, attempting to advance the gospel, attempting to live on the mission. We could turn to multiple New Testament passages that describe uh, the hardships and dangers that Paul experienced. There are many, many texts like that. Probably uh, many of them would come to mind even as I say that. And he's saying, why on earth, why put your life in danger for others if neither you nor they have any hope of resurrection? That would be absurd. But Paul says, there is a resurrection. And it was his belief in a future resurrection that drove him to repeatedly risk his own life so that people could hear the gospel and their lives could uh, be changed and transformed by it and they could grow. Paul understood something and he had a firm conviction of something. He understood that people will be raised and they will be raised bodily from their graves either to eternal life in the presence of God or they will be raised bodily from their graves to eternal destruction, to experience God's wrath for all of eternity. Paul got that. And it was his firm conviction, and apparently it was front and center on his mind. And that reality changed his life. Belief about the future affects behavior in the present. Are you so convinced of the future that you're willing to live radically on mission? You will make sacrifices for the advance of the gospel if you are. And also, you will focus on others in the advance of the gospel. What we see in verses 30 to 31 is not an inward focus. It's actually, it's very much an outward focus. Belief in a future should turn your attention towards other people. Paul's saying, 
you know, if there's, if there's no resurrection, why, why would we be in danger every hour? Why would my traveling companions and I literally be at risk of death every day? Why was that going on? Because he was trying to take the message of the gospel to other people. It was about other people hearing the good news of what Jesus had done for them. And that endeavor brought all the risks. If, if he's not on that mission, if he's not endeavoring to do that, all the risks go away. He wanted to ready other people for the last day. Belief impacts behavior. If you believe that God will raise people bodily from their graves, either to eternal life or eternal destruction in the lake of fire, don't you think that will impact what you do? Don't you think that would impact your behavior in such a way that you would live to try to ready other people for the future, even if it's costly? And probably most of us are are never going to face the risks and sacrifices that Paul faced. But hopefully we would say, I want to live on that mission. Even if it costs me uh, what people think of me. Even if it costs me my time and energy and resources, I want to live on that mission. Even if it makes me uncomfortable, I want to live on that mission. You will make sacrifices for the advance of the gospel if if you have this conviction about the future. You will focus on others in the advance of the gospel. And, And I think what happens, we could look at a text like this and go, you know what, like, yikes. Being a Christian, who would want to do that? Who would want to live on mission? I mean, like what Paul's describing here, that sounds like a miserable life. I mean, the sacrifices, the potential risk, uh, whatever may come with it, the discomfort that may come with it, a focus on other people, that sounds miserable. Well, that's not how it works. Quite the opposite. You will find meaning and significance And so many other things like joy in the advance of the gospel. Look at verse 31. Paul continues. He says, I protest. The idea being, I swear, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. The language is a bit odd, but basically... Paul is swearing that he dies every day, that because there's a resurrection, all these risks are a reality in his life. But notice what he swears by. He swears by, he says, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he he's swearing by? He's swearing by the Corinthians. What's going on? Well, one writer, I think, has captured it well with these words. What a telling oath this is. To make sure that they understand the truth of his constant facing of death, he swears by that which is dearest to him, their own existence in Christ. He's swearing by the fact that that they've been reborn, that they're Christians. He swears by that which is dearest to him, their own existence in Christ, which also came about by labors that had exposed him to such dangers. Uh, Paul led a sacrificial life for the sake of gospel advance. And as a result, what happened to the Corinthians? They heard of Jesus and God saved them. And what a delight that was to Paul. 
These are not the type of things that, that you can put a price tag on. I mean, Paul is sitting there, and he, he, in his mind, what he's trying to convey in these words is, there are all these risks, and I die every day, and yet the joy is greater. I swear by you and the new life that you have in Christ. When you live for tomorrow, you find meaning and purpose and significance and joy because of what happens in people's lives. What happens? Well, unbelievers come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. People who one day were destined to be raised from their graves on some future day and and cast into hell for all of eternity are reborn and granted eternal life to be raised now uh, to live in, in the presence of God for all of eternity. Unbelievers trust in Christ and those who have already trusted Christ as you seek to live your life on mission and you see, seek to be a disciple maker and pour your life into other people and help them grow. They grow and they're changed. And that what when that happens, what comes with that is an indescribable joy. And that seems to be what Paul is conveying. yes, there's all these risks, but the joy of what happens in people's lives is greater. The joy outweighs the pain. Those who believe in a future resurrection live radically on mission, and that means that they live for tomorrow. And it means uh, that they don't live for today. If if you're going to live life on mission, your life's not just going to be about here and now. That's what people do who have no future hope of the resurrection. That's what people do who believe that death is is the end and death is the final victor. There's either a mission and there's hope or there's no mission and there's no hope. Look at verse 32. Paul says, as he continues to talk about some of his experiences advancing the gospel, he goes, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no future, there's no gain whatsoever in living the way Paul was living. That would be absurd. That'd be crazy. Why would you do that? And rather what we should say, if, if if the future is not how God describes it, rather what we should say is, let us eat and let us drink. And let us be merry and make the most of this life. Let us make the most of today, for tomorrow we die. In other words, suck everything out of today for yourself that you possibly can. Those who live for today, they focus on self and pleasure. The question becomes, what can I do to make my life as good and as great and as wonderful and as comfortable as possible? Because that's all there is. I mean, it's merely all there is, so I'm just going to grab everything that I can. In contrast to what we just saw, this is not an outward focus on others in the future, but an inward focus on me and now. Paul's on a mission, and his focus is the future, and the future makes him think about other people and their eternal destinies and, and the advance of the gospel so that people could be saved and people could, be grow, people could grow. But when you take the future away, there's no mission. Why would your focus be outward? Now it's me. And now it's today. And now it's pleasure. And now it's comfort. 
And now it's my best life now. Also, those who live for today, they really have no hope and are often miserable. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What a fatalistic attitude. There's no hope. One of the reasons that that mentality and lifestyle is so depressing and miserable is because Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says this. It says, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. God hardwired you and me for eternity. God made you for more than an earthly existence. Death is not the end. An earthly life and all that it affords and all that it has to offer is not the intended pinnacle of man's existence. A few years ago, I was traveling with a few other people to a conference uh, that was down in the States. Uh, I think it was in January or something like that. And as we were down there, a huge snowstorm led to the delay and grounding of many flights. We were, I think, halfway home by that point. And so all these flights end up grounded, ours included. And the airline that we were traveling with, uh, so many flights were delayed. And I don't know what the deal was exactly, but they were not able to put everyone up in hotels. So hundreds of people now are going to spend the night in the airport. Uh, And one passenger was particularly bothered by that fact that the airline had not provided a hotel. You know, we're supposed to be home and you're not even going to put us up for a hotel. You're going to leave us here in the airport? And so he began to, to push with the airline going up to the desk. I mean, the, the, the line up to the desk was like dozens and dozens of people long. And he just goes up there and basically starts kind of raising a stink. And, and basically his intended goal was, this passenger, if you're not going to put us up in a hotel, then I'm literally going to grab everything I can from you here tonight at the airport. <laughs> okay, so a cot. Okay, I got my cot. But now I was like, what else can you give me? I was like, water bottles, travel kits. Just, I want everything you can give me. And, you know, this passenger is walking around. He's got all these little travel kits and little toothbrushes and toothpaste and this, that, and the other. Wow. Isn't that great? I mean, you really struck it rich there. And what he was literally trying to do was, I'm going to squeeze everything out of this experience that I can. And what he was holding was miniature toothbrushes, miniature toothpaste, miniature combs. Wow. Because that's what the airport can provide you. And many people, they they journey through life like that. This is it. I mean, there's nothing brighter. So I'm going to squeeze everything out of this life that I can. And I'm going to pursue it for everything that I have. And then they have something in their hands. And it's like those little miniature toothbrushes and little toothpaste, little travel kits, little combs, little brushes, little mini pillow. And that's what you get. That's how some people live life. And that may be how, how... you're living life, if you're looking for life to provide for you more than it was ever intended to give, you're going to be miserable. It's actually the people who understand like, hey, this, this is what God has designed it to be and there's a lot of simple pleasures here and things to enjoy and I will. But my great hope is in the future. It's not all about here and now and my best life today. And maybe there are some of you and you're just living on this mission about your best life now. 
How can I be comfortable? How can I have the most experiences here in this life? How, how can I have this and have that? And how can I squeeze so much out of this for me and here and now? God never designed that to be fulfilling. It's actually when, when you set your eyes on the future and you see other people in light of this great day that's coming and you live on that mission, it, there's going to be cost and sacrifice involved in that, but that will be a life of tremendous joy and tremendous, tremendous satisfaction. What you believe about the future will impact how you live today. If you believe in a future res- resurrection, you're going to live radically on mission. You'll live for tomorrow, and that will be a satisfying, joy-filled life. A couple of thoughts. Uh, I was looking at this text going, why don't I live and think like this to the degree that I should? I mean, it's preaching, it's not the hard part. <laughs> you know, Living, it's what's hard. Why, as I look at my own life, why, why don't I live like that to the degree that I should? I would look at my own life and go, I, I've got a lot of room to grow in these things that I'm talking about. And personally, just thinking about this for myself, I think that one of the greatest things that I could do is spend time memorizing and meditating on scriptures uh, like the previous paragraph that we looked at two weeks ago about what the end is like. And, and memorizing and meditating scriptures like, Re- on, like Revelation 20, 11 to 15 that, that talk about the end. And they talk about the glorious aspects of the end for God's people. And they talk about the, these terrible aspects of the end for those don't, who don't know him, like the lake of fire. I need the realities of the end to permeate my soul in a way that they're probably not currently doing. So that when I see other people, what I see is I see the end. And I see those people in light of the end. That's not how I naturally think about people. Most of us probably give very little thought to the end. And it's evidenced by our values and by our priorities. Another thought is... I think in all this, it's important to remember your role and remember God's role, and they're different. It's your and my role to live on mission, not to produce the results. I mean, I, I like really want to produce results, right? I mean, I want to, I wish I could personally like twist people's arms and make them get saved and make them grow, and that'll happen really fast. A person's salvation and a person's growth in godliness, what we sometimes refer to as sanctification, Those things are a miraculous work of God. And he uses very, very ordinary people like me and like you in that work. Live on mission and leave the results up to God. You and I don't control the outcome. And if you think that it's your job to produce and create the outcome, you will be a discouraged person. person as you seek to live on the mission. We're simply means that God uses, and that's so liberating. We just need to be faithful. The Great Commission is not a sales job where you get paid or you get rewarded a commission or you gain the boss's favor when you close a deal. May we never reduce it to that. That's not how the scriptures talk about it. This is a miraculous, glorious work of God that he's invited us to be a part of. Let's just be faithful in it and say, God, would you use me in this work?
Let's do our part and leave the results up to God. A third and final observation. Those who don't believe in or who lose sight of a future resurrection live wrongly. And they need to repent. Remember, belief impacts behavior. And that's why Paul wrote these words, these verses to the Corinthians, because this was them. And maybe it's you, maybe it's me, and we should all take a look here and examine ourselves. In verses 33 to 34, God gives three commands calling these people to repentance. And first, he says to them, you're deceived, guys. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived, or stop being deceived. And in conjunction with that, bad company ruins good morals. If you don't believe that God's people will rise bodily from their graves, you're deluded, you're deceived. Christ will vanquish all of his foes, including death. And he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Those are facts and they're guaranteed. And what Paul goes on to do is quote from a secular work. It's Menander's Thias. And he says, bad company ruins good morals. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's a secular quote. Even secular society recognizes this truth. In fact, most parents, whether they're Christians or non-Christian parents, probably have people that they don't want their kids to hang out with because of the negative influence those people will have on their children. Paul's point here is that people inside the church or outside of it who take the no resurrection position, like what some of the Corinthians were doing, there is no resurrection from the dead. Such people will destroy your morals if given the opportunity because theology or belief impacts behavior. The Corinthian church needed to deal with the theological wrong in its midst. It was corrupting the morals of the church. Uh, How so? Well, you think of, obviously, if they're listening to people who say there is no resurrection, you're taking a wrong position and taking wrong belief is sinful. But do you know of any other New Testament book that calls out as many sins, as many immoralities, as many moral failures in the church as the book of 1 Corinthians? Can you think of a New Testament letter that's like this one? It's like the book of all the bad things. It's like, wow, this church has major, major problems. And Paul's just dealing with them one right after another. Verse 33, I think, gives the idea that many of those moral problems that we've looked at over the last several weeks could be traced actually back to bad theology about the future. Belief about the future affects behavior in the present. And this is super important. He says as well, guys, you're in a drunken stupor. Look at verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Come to your senses and become sober-minded about the future and its realities. It's the right thing to do. And this bad theology is the enemy of your evangelistic zeal and your moral living. And it's sapping the life out of the church. And he's telling them, wake up. And finally, he's telling them, you are in sin. Look at verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It is a sin to hold 
theology that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The future resurrection is central to the gospel and our salvation includes our bodies. If we do not rise bodily from the grave, then not even Christ has been raised. We await a bodily resurrection. To deny that is a sin and to deny that will lead you into sin. Ask the Corinthians. And Paul is saying these things to their shame. And so what about us? The gospel includes our resurrection and so many other realities related to the end. And those truths need to soak deep into our souls. A really light rain doesn't do much. If you plant a garden or if you plant grass seed and you're hoping that it will rain, if it just rains for a couple, couple minutes really lightly, that's not going to do much. And the heat of the sun is very likely to burn the moisture up from off the surface of the ground before it ever soaks into the earth. But a heavy rain, if you want something to grow, you want a heavy rain to come and just permeate and soak deep into the ground. The realities of the end need to be like that. They need to permeate the soil of our hearts like a heavy rain. You need to sit before these realities and I need to sit before them and let them soak into our souls. They've got to go down deep into us. And if they do, you and I won't be the same because belief impacts behavior. Our beliefs about the future will impact our behavior today. Belief and conviction about what God says about the end will change your perspective on many things. It'll change your perspective on sin. It'll change your perspective on evangelism. All these people, they're dying. And there's an eternity that awaits them. It'll change your perspective on your purpose of life. What am I trying to do here? What am I trying to attain in in, in my 70 years or my 80 years of life? And it will change your perspective on so much more. What you believe about the future will impact how you live today. And if you don't, If you've lost sight of it or don't believe it, you are living wrongly. And like the Corinthians, you need to repent. So a couple questions as we wrap up. Do you have sin in your life that points to the fact that you're not living in in the reality of the resurrection and of the future? And have your evangelistic senses been numbed by bad theology or absent-minded theology that keeps you from looking forward to the future and just makes you focus on today. Have your evangelistic senses been numbed by bad theology? What you believe about the future will impact how you live today. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes